Welcome to Ed Council Insights. This is our podcast to provide insights into new developments in the Missouri education community. If you are a Missouri school leader, school board member, or any public educational decision maker in Missouri, well, you are in the right place. Today, we are going to be discussing MOCAP, which stands for the Missouri Course Access and Virtual School Program. MOCAP is something that was created by statute and established by DESE in 2018, but it's undergone a number of substantial changes since then. Generally speaking, MOCAP is a particular program that offers online courses for eligible students kindergarten through 12th grade. Now, I say a particular program because not all online programs are MOCAP, and people tend to get that confused as to what is MOCAP and what is not. And there are a number of different online options for schools and students to consider. But with all of the changes that have been made recently involving the MOCAP program, we thought it'd be good to take a little time today to provide an update on the program and maybe address some of the common misperceptions or perhaps areas that are not commonly understood about MOCAP. Unfortunately, I think some of the recent changes with the MOCAP program continue to be a work in progress in light of the passage of recent legislation, and there are some pieces that have to still be sorted out. So no one is really going to have all of the answers on this part, but to talk through the issues with us, we have invited the person, I think, who is most likely to understand where we are with MOCAP and perhaps even a little about where it is going. And that is Dr. Marley Williams. Dr. Williams is uh, the Virtual Learning Administrator for the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education and has some substantial responsibilities in the administration of the MOCAP program for the state. So with that, I would like to welcome Dr. Marley Williams. Thank you. Thank you, Dwayne. Thanks for joining us. Uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to kind of explain some of these things and uh, kind of go through them for our listeners, because I think there is a fair amount of confusion out there. But uh, maybe the best place to start for our listeners would be to, especially the ones that may not be familiar with you and your role at DESE anyway, can you talk to them a little bit about what your role is at the department and maybe a little bit about the MOCAP program generally? Sure. Well, I'm new to the department, um, having retired as a public school district administrator at the end of the last school year. Um, my new role, as you said, is as the Missouri Virtual Learning Administrator, and I began that work on July 1st, and that almost precisely coincided with the passage of the new law that we're going to be focused on in great part today. And, and my work really entails the oversight of the MOCAP program, um, of our MOCAP team, as well as also supervising the gifted learning director. So I have some pretty specialized work and, and focus at the department. And MOCAP really is about online learning providers and the online courses um, that are submitted to the department. And we make sure that those courses are aligned to Missouri's learning standards and if those providers provide curriculum only courses that they're aligned to standards, as I said, but then if those providers um, also provide instruction that their teachers are appropriately certified for the courses that they teach with Missouri certification. So 
you know, as you said, there are lots of online vendors and online providers, and there are only 18 that are MOCAP certified, and those are aligned to Missouri Learning Standards, and if they provide instruction as well, those teachers are appropriately certified for what they're teaching in the state of Missouri. Really is a lot when you look at the full array, uh, I think, Marley, and, you know, but you did mention something that I want to key in on, if I may. And that is, uh, you know, we've had some, a few legislative changes to the MOCAP program uh, that went into effect in August, August 28th. And that was with the passage of House Bill 1552. Can you just take a minute to give our listeners a general idea of some of the major changes in the state's MOCAP programs as a result of 1552? Sure. I think the major changes really are that students are able to enroll full-time in those hosted programs without going through any kind of approval process. Um, all they have to do is notify of their intent to participate. Um, another major change is that students transfer their enrollment from their resident district to um, the district that hosts that full-time online program. Another change is that full-time MOCAP providers um, are now attendance centers, and they have to administer state assessments, both the MAP test and the end-of-course assessments, and those results are reported just as results are reported for any other attendance center. Um, and finally, I think this is pretty significant. State aid for students who attend those full-time hosted programs, um, they're paid to the host districts. So that state aid piece is a big change under House Bill 1552. Good, good. You've covered some of the areas I wanted to get into, um, and we can kind of come back. I kind of want to get into some of that terminology you were using about host district and resident district. But before we even get there, you were talking about eligibility and some of the requirements have changed. So just generally, what are the basic eligibility requirements now for students who want to participate in a MOCAP? Well, for a full-time hosted program, students um, need only be enrolled in a resident district and then notify um, them of their intent or their desire to participate. Then at that point, they can participate in that full-time program of their choice. For MOCAP courses, which are different, the students work through their school's MOCAP approval process. Um, and of course, students with IEPs, which are students who are IDEA eligible, students who have special education requirements, they need to make sure that compliance with um, the Individuals with Disabilities Act or IDEA is maintained. Um, so I would really recommend that they talk with their IEP case manager um, and access some of the resources that we have posted on the MOCAP website for more information. And you mentioned that they have to be enrolled in the resident district, and that's a little bit of a change because before you had to have a certain amount of time in a public school district, right? Right. That was one of the changes out of House Bill 1552. This was one of the barriers that the legislator wanted to remove was that time time-bound piece. Um, you no longer have to have been enrolled for a semester prior to declaring your intent to participate in MOCAP courses. You now only have to be currently enrolled. So as soon as you sign up and are enrolled in that public school district, you can go and uh, be a part of the MOCAP program and basically yeah. go to the host district at that point, right? Unless you're, That is it, correct, so. yes. So uh, let's break it down a little bit, if we, if we could, Morley. I want to discuss some of the significant impacts of 1552, and I know you've touched on them here, but and I want to do that for both students and for our school districts. 
let's start with the students. And you've been kind of working this for a little bit now, but uh, what would you say are the biggest impacts to our students that are related to the legislative changes? Well, I think for students, it was the intent of the legislator, and I think it is the removal of a barrier for enrollment and an option for them. Um, if they want to participate in full-time programming, it lifts that approval process off of their participation. So that is a big change for students. Um, and then it's a big change for them to transfer from their resident district to that host district. That's significant in that it has implications for students in terms of sports and activities, in terms of issuance of diplomas, um, because students will now, if they are a full-time MOCAP program participant, they will receive their diploma from the host district, not from the resident district. And, and those are things that students may not uh, consider initially, but those are significant impacts um, under House Bill 1552. Good, good. And, and one thing that maybe we ought to clear up at this point, Marley, is that you're referring to full-time which is a, <laughs> a big distinction under the statute. So uh, when we say full-time for MOCAP purposes, what are we really talking about? So those students who are participating in those programs that are six full-time equivalent courses per educational term. Okay. So they hit that, then they're full-time. And if not, then it kind of floats back to the way the statute was before 1552, right? That's correct. And the full-time MOCAP provider in the hosted program is, is the significant distinction as well, Duane. Gotcha. Now, I said I wanted to talk about students and the impact there first, but what about for our school districts? I mean, obviously, they're uh, significantly impacted by this, and you've been dealing with, I'm sure, a, a large number of schools as they've tried to get oriented to the new statutory changes. What are you seeing there? Well, I think the transfer of state aid for students who leave resident districts to participate in those hosted programs. So the state aid leaves the um, resident district and transfers to the host district. So state adequacy target times weighted ADA, um, the state adequacy target at $6,375. That's a significant impact for districts. Um, on the host side, the host district is, is the recipient of those funds that you know they then are working with their online provider. And then um, on the resident side, they are used to being billed per course for online courses that their students have chosen to engage in. Now they are not being billed by course. So I would say that the transfer of the state aid is a pretty significant impact for districts. Another significant impact I would say is, is simply ensuring that student educational needs are met um, and that students are not lost in the cracks along the way. Um, if a student is dropped by a full-time MOCAP provider, the resident district has some responsibilities out, as outlined in the statute um, and they must fulfill those. So it's the foundational purpose of all educational providers to provide an appropriate education to all students. And, and I think we have to ensure that we're doing that. So I think, you know, that's going to be a significant impact for all of us. You know, we've been talking about host district and resident district, and it probably at this point, it's, it's best to kind of maybe identify for our listeners what we're talking about here. Uh, and I say resident district, district of residence, I think is actually the terminology the department uses. But, you know, what is the difference between the host district and the district of residence under the MOCAP programs? Sure. Uh, the statute 
defines the host district as those districts, charter schools, or institutions of higher education that sponsor or host that full-time online vendor or, or provider. And then the resident district is the district in which a student physically lives or where the student would attend if the student chose to attend school in person. So, you know, I've, I've been um, dealing with this legislation a lot since I started with the department. So now resident district and host district feel pretty familiar in, in terms to me, but host district is the one that is sponsoring or hosting the online provider. And the resident district is the district in which the student is physically domiciled or in which they would attend if they attended school in person. So now do all MOCAP vendors, do they all have a host district in the state of Missouri? And they do not. So there are 18, as I, I mentioned before, and eight of those uh, MOCAP approved providers have hosts. And if you look on the MOCAP website, we have a, a nice little T-chart and you'll see on the left side, those eight hosted full-time providers are listed with their um, hosts in parentheses. And then on the right side are those other 10 MOCAP providers that are not hosted, that are course providers. So we tried to give some visual separation so that anyone looking at that chart can see clearly based on the titles of each column, which ones are hosted and which ones are not hosted MOCAP providers. And that's uh, critical for our school leaders to identify, right? Because it is, it really uh, is. Because if you, as I understand it, and I want you to please tell me if I'm wrong here or clear it up, but to be eligible under a MOCAP program as it has been revised under uh, 1552, basically the student must enroll in a MOCAP uh, with a MOCAP vendor that has one of those host districts. And otherwise, the 1552 changes really don't apply. Is that fair? The significant changes under 1552 are related to those full-time MOCAP providers. You are correct. Okay. So if, if they don't have a host district, how does that, what's, what, how does that change what the school district does with it? Um, it, it really doesn't. They still have to or, or are allowed to go through that approval or denial process um, that they engaged in prior to House Bill 1552. The things that changed with the um, non-hosted were things like having to be enrolled in the in the state for six months or for a semester prior to. Some um, of those gatekeeper things that we had yes. in place. So those are going to apply if the vendor doesn't have a hosted dis host district, is yes. that right? Okay. But those that do, all of these things that we're talking about for a full-time student, they're going to be applicable and they're going to have to follow those. Is that kind of fair way of looking at it? It is. Okay. Now, I want to talk a little bit, Marley, if we could, about enrollment, because I think there's some confusion about how this is supposed to work. And maybe the best place to start is just to have you walk us through the enrollment process and how, what it's supposed to look like for students. And I suppose there's, um, let's start with students that don't have an IEP and what the enrollment process really needs to look like. Sure, and I'm going to reference two flowcharts that we have posted on the MOCAP Perfect. website. I think those are the simplest um, way to walk you through this. Um, and, and it will give everyone who's listening something that they can reference as well. So the MOCAP website, mocap.mo.gov, I think is a nice place to access these resources. So if you're a hosted 
um, if your, your student has notified you that they want to engage in a hosted program. The first thing to note is that they're residents and are enrolled in the resident district. And then if they're not an IEP student, you're not going to worry about engaging with the IEP team. Um, the student then would disenroll or in um, layman's terms, we would say they would withdraw from your resident district and transfer to the host district. So, you know, there would be uh, records request and transfer. As they enroll in the host district, they would receive their course schedule. Um, the host district and provider would then engage in a collaborative and good faith process to complete the education services plan and collaborative agreement, which we, as of today, have samples of posted on the MOCAP website. Yay! Yay! <laughs> And uh, then the student engages in the coursework. Excellent. And I'm glad you mentioned those resources because really, as uh, you know, our team's looking at everything, that's really where we've kind of centered our, you know, as our, our resource on, okay, what is it that the expectations are now that we're really applying these things as a practical matter? So I, I appreciate you mentioning those. Now, we were talking about students without an IEP. How's that change if we're talking about a student with an IEP? Well, um, again, we have posted an IEP enrollment process as of today, simplified um, on the MOCAP website. And you did that because you knew you were going to be on Ed Council Insights and said, well, okay, well, we got to have absolutely. these resources. Right? Sure, sure. <laughs> okay, I'll um, take that. <laughs> I, I think there were so many questions surrounding how to navigate this process with IDEA eligible students. And, and the reality is it took us some time to work with the department's special ed team and, and really to hammer out um, what all of the steps should be. And, and so that's why this took a little bit longer to navigate. But step one, as you would see on this process document, the student again is a resident of Missouri and is enrolled in a public school or charter school, the parent or guardian engages with the IEP team in the resident district um, before beginning the transfer process. Step two, the IDEA eligible student expresses intent or interest to the resident district um, in the full-time MOCAP program. Step three, the resident district IEP team holds a meeting to consider um, free appropriate public education and whether that can be provided. And then upon the IEP team's conclusion that FAPE is able to be provided, the IEP team drafts an IEP contingent upon the student enrolling in the hosted program. Step four, the resident district contacts the provider and the host district notifies them of the student's intent and begins that enrollment process. The host district requests educational records. The host then and the provider reviews the special education records and considers the enrollment. And I think this is an important piece. The host and provider always have the right of denial. So while the resident district cannot deny a student requesting that full-time um, programming, whether it's a special education student or not, the, the provider and the host district can always deny. So then the host district uses the IDEA transfer process to accept or reject the IEP and evaluation report. The next step is that the resident district, the host district, and the provider collaborate in good faith to create, again, the education services plan, which is different than the IEP. Um, and then that, 
Once that plan is developed, the student is enrolled in the MOCAP provider coursework and engages in the courses. Good. Uh, that's very helpful, Marley. That's a lot, Dwayne. Sorry. I know it is. It is. A, this is a lot. And, you know, um, I think it's it's a lot, but it also I, th I hope people can appreciate. And I kind of uh, said this at the top, but, you know, this is something we're going to be working through some of the practical issues for a bit. Uh, would you agree? I definitely agree. I mean, that's just the, the nature of the beast at this point. So really helpful for you to point out those tools and to kind of walk us through that. Now, you did mention a couple terms that I want to key in on, though. Uh, educational services plan and collaborative agreement. Now, can you just take a few minutes to explain what these terms are and maybe, uh, you know, what school districts need to consider as they try to meet their obligations with respect to these key documents? Yes, um, the education services plan um, is accompanied by the collaborative agreement, and it really is the sample that we provided on the MOCAP website is a single document. It lays out the services and supports um, along with any facilities or personnel that need to be used to fulfill all of the educational needs um, and services for the student. Um, the plan and agreement lays out who's, who is responsible for providing these, the time frame for the delivery of the supports and services, and then all of the financial components that accompany these pieces. So what you're going to see are a couple of tables in the sample so that these things can be um, identified in, in a pretty simple visual way. And then there are a couple of places for some narratives to explain exactly what is being included. Um, so for instance, if a student needs to have an advanced placement exam proctored in another location nearby home or in a resident district. It's going to lay out who is the proctor, how much the facility charge will be for proctoring the exam, how much the proctor is being paid, what the time frame is. So that will be once per semester or once annually, however they choose to write that in, um, and any other considerations for that student. And you know, when I first read the statute, uh, as it had uh, with the passage of 1552, it struck me that that there are a lot of details that have to be worked out among the parties here. It's really not something that the department comes up with this and says, okay, here's what's going to happen in terms of the plan for this student. It's that, you know, that resident school district and, you know, vendor host district, I mean, people are going to have to come together to agree about these things in the best interest of, of these kiddos, right? That's yeah, the idea? Absolutely. I mean, there could be some very unique things um, regarding lab facilities and uh, other kinds of very individualized supports and services for students that um, you can't possibly include in a statute. Well, and I, you know, I guess it uh, does lead to uh, additional employment for our team in terms of trying to sort out some of those things. But, you know, that's that's uh, what we'll have to do to try to make sure that we work all this out. But it is it, it, something that I think is, it, you know, as we look at it, I think school leaders are really at this point just not really that familiar with what this is going to look like and what they need to be thinking about to see around corners here. But, you know, from your perspective, Marley, what's your best advice to school leaders as they, and I, and I, when I say school leaders, I'm really focusing on most of our listeners are going to be with the district of residents. 
you know, those school leaders, as they approach some of these issues and work through student enrollment in the programs, what's your best advice to them? Uh, my advice really would be to um, just do your best to work with the other parties involved. Um, send an email, give the other leader, the provider, the parent a call. Um, try to keep open lines of communication. With this new law, there are points of clarification that need to occur. And um, there are practical realities that need to be applied that we have to think through. Um, call us in the MOCAP office at the department. Um, there are interpretations that are different on several of these points that we're working through. So communication and reaching out to each other, I think, is the best path forward. I think we are trying to work with everyone and um, do our best to come around the intent of the legislation. But I, I would just really advise everyone to be as open and communicative as possible, because there are going to be some things that are challenging that we have to work through. A lot of edges to be sanded in my estimation, you know, it's just it's a nice way to put it. That is for sure. <laughs> um, I don't put things nicely very often. So thank you for that. I appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, the thing that, uh, you know, I was looking at, it does seem to me that as we're trying to <laughs> figure out what edges have to be sanded, where, where this is going, that from, you know, looking at what the department has to do here, which is not exactly enviable, you know, what, are your next steps? What things are you looking at at the department level of saying, okay, here, we got to bring all of this online. This is where we're going next. Well, um, as the, as I've worked through my new role here at DESE, um, I had a big challenge right out of the gate, getting the first iteration of the guidance and the FAQs posted. Um, that happened on August 30th. And we just today, October 4th, have posted updated guidance and some additional questions that have come to us, um, along with the sample ESP and the IEP process. We have until January 1st to post the final guidance. Um, I have begun the administrative rulemaking process. So I would suspect that as time goes forward, we will continue to collect the feedback continue to collect the questions as they come into us um, and, and just see what other edges come to us that need to be sanded, I, I suppose, would be <laughs> to borrow your phrase. That's um, all yours. <laughs> um, but really, I, we have anticipated a few things, but there are some other realities that will happen in practical application that I don't think anyone has anticipated um, that will ev evolve the guidance, I think, as we move forward. And just today on our provider call, we've already had students transfer in and transfer out, and that caused some core data questions that I need to add to the um, guidance document, the frequently asked questions, just as samples for the core data manual, I think. And those things will continue to happen as we move forward. And I know you've mentioned a couple things here, but just really, if if as school leaders are looking at this and trying to make sure they're staying on top of the new requirements or maybe additional guidance, where are you sending them? Where exactly do they need to go? Well, um, core data, I, I look to the core data team at DESE. They are very open to answering questions. Um, our special ed department team has 
been fantastic at working through the questions that I pose to them. And sometimes I don't know exactly who to ask the question to. But they can start with you, right? Absolutely. Oh, yes, 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 yes. So, uh, you know, if they need to, and then there are a number of resources on the department website that I think are pretty helpful. I mean, it's almost as if you need to kind of get read in on those things before you start asking questions, because you've got to have that base to really understand where that question's going <laughs> and where the guidance is likely to go and, and get some more definitive answers from them. But there, uh, it, it sounds like you're going to be probably consistently updating this information from time to time. That's correct. Yes. And sorry, Dwayne, I was taking that a step further. Yes. Start with me. And yes, then I yeah. will direct uh, you on down the road. <laughs> um, you know, the, uh, well, and it, it, it uh, but it does kind of depend on the nature of the question too, on where that's going to probably end up poured out of might have to get involved in, and and certainly the special education folks at DESE are probably going to have to get dialed into some of these issues too. Well, I think that is a lot of information for folks. Very helpful. I, you know, let me ask you this, just kind of giving you a parting shot here is, or, you know, are there any additional closing thoughts that for our listeners that as they contemplate moving forward with students in the MOCAP program, things that you want them to be thinking about? Well, I guess I would just say thank you for working with me pleasantly and patiently um, as I've joined the team and worked through the new law. Um, It really has been a pleasure to get to talk with so many leaders from across the state um, so rapidly, really, as I've begun this work. And and I look forward to continue to getting to know everyone. Um, That's what I would say is really just thank you. Well, thank you, uh, Marley. You know, Dr. Williams is a, is a wealth of information, and we really do appreciate your insights today and taking the time uh, to update everybody on the MOCAP program. And we thank you, listeners, for taking the time today to listen to Ed Council Insights. We hope you'll follow and share our podcast on social media and subscribe to hear our upcoming episodes on current legal topics and issues related to school law. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, or LinkedIn, or you can check us out at our website. Just Google Ed Council, E-D-C-O-U-N-S-E-L, all one word, and you'll find us there. Glad we could be together, and thanks for listening to this edition of Ed Council Insights.